Episode 47 of Gaming NBS, sponsored by DarkTheater.net, home of the character Folio. Welcome to Gaming NBS, a tabletop role-playing game. Or role-playing game? It's not a role-playing game. Tabletop RPG podcast where we talk about RPGs and other miscellaneous topics of geekery. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett. I think uh, I don't think our show would make a very interesting role-playing game in general. Wow. I think it might. It might be <laughs> if We'd if you m- got to role-play the uh, the thing we just went through trying to get the show started. That might be entertaining. But other than that, wouldn't be that much fun. We have to modify the rules. We do. Or I just wouldn't use them anyway, so what the fuck ever. <laughs> That's true. It'd be Brett's Pathfinder version, and it wouldn't play any rules. There'd be no dice, and what would happen, and no one would know what's going on. Anyway, how are you, Sean? I'm well. I am well, Brett. I am doing good. I'm doing okay. I, it's a long day. It's hot as hell outside, for Christ's oh. sake. It's like mug, mudgy, as my father-in-law would have said. Yes, I went outside today with my two little ones for some archery practice in the backyard. I've got a big cornfield behind me. And uh, shooting the bow was kind of on, and then I got distracted because I was watching the kids trying to help them. So my aim was getting a little bit off. I was getting frustrated, and then I realized, I'm like, it's like 90 freaking degrees and muggy as hell. This might be why I'm not shooting very well. So drilled it it a couple times in a boiler room and went home. Makes meatball soup. Yeah, yes, it does. (laughs) I never never knew that saying until recently. Nice. Meatball soup, and like, what's that? Like, oh, oh, uh, yeah. I always had meat, meatball soup. That sounds gross because <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> All you, right. You know what meatball soup is? I don't know. I kind of guessing. I don't yeah, want to talk about it's it. It's sweaty nuts is what it is. That's kind of what I thought sweet, it was. There you go. I said I didn't want to talk about it. It's bad. I hate it. Gotta All right. Put some powder on the boys. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Baby powder, man. That's... <laughs> So I, I got this freaking weather, dude. Nothing evaporates. Nothing evaporates in this shit. Right. Carry on. Announcements. <laughs> what else have we got? Ah, fucking go ahead. Go ahead oh. with your goddamn announcement so I don't All know. Right. Steal, steering it back on the uh, Sean train tracks here. Um, so the Gaming and BS Spy Network, we are completely successful. We had an elite team that we sent to uh, Gen Con for the specific purpose of infiltrating the Misdirected Mark uh, seminar. They play better games, damn it. And it's, it's a, it was a hit. They got in. Represented, we even got the misdirected mark guys to post a picture of our spy team wearing a gaming MBS T-shirt at Gen Con in their seminar. So, ha! That was awesome. Yeah, I also understand that they. Kefthulu was there. Yep, Kevin and Austin. Yeah, so good stuff. I'm going to assume that probably over half of their um, seminar attendees were there because we plugged it for them. So I'm just going to assume that's kind of how that went. We can assume all we want. Exactly. I have no facts to back that up. <laughs> oh, the other thing I want to say, just kind of two other pieces. I shouldn't say the other thing. Two other pieces around Gen Con. Um, I want to hear what you guys liked out there. What was your favorite part? Anyone who went, what what was the best game you played, the coolest piece of gear you bought, books, whatever. And uh, for those of you who I think may have snagged some misdirected Mark Gaming and BS index cards. Yeah, where's the let's picks? Get some pic- let's get some pics of the index cards up there. I think Kevin posted his. I want to see the others. Um, but the last thing about Gen Con that I thought was really cool for those of us who didn't go, the volume of the, I can't make Gen Con, but I'm going to game like a madman anyway, activity on Google Plus. My buddy Zave and Chad from my home group, they had a, 
some kind of a there, there was the uh, you know can't con and I couldn't make it and not able to go con people just these you know wacky little names but people got together in mass and game like crazy this last weekend just getting together with people who didn't make Gen Con and still had a hell of a lot of fun I love that that the fact that the that you can't make Gen Con but the whole spirit of just gaming and getting together and really enjoying the hobby and setting aside some time for it was pretty strong so. Kudos to everybody out there who organized little uh, can't make Gen Con, but let's fucking game anyway convention stuff that went down. That's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool, and it's, it's it, very cool. It's the last day of Gen Con as we record this, so we survived. We all got together. We all got through this together. We absolutely the, did through the Gen Con absentee support group, which I had posted throughout the interwebs. It was uh, it was touch and go for a little bit there. We lost well, lost a few, lost a few good gamers, but uh, I think uh, those those of us that came out the end are the stronger for it. So that's right, makes you stronger. <laughs> what have you got? All right, I got a little something I want to talk to everybody about. Update from the game hole. All right, so uh, August first, this past Saturday, went live with the early registration event registration. So if you're a VIG badge person. You probably got online and snagged up a few events. Now, I had read, uh, I think it was Roger, actually, uh, from Maine, who's coming, that mentioned uh, he went on there and there's plenty of events. So just because it's VIG and we have some privilege there, I'm a VIG person. The funny thing is I'm VIG, but I don't, I don't stack up my schedule with it all. And that's, I don't know, it's just kind of my way of throwing money at Gamehole, I guess. What's well, fine. I mean, the, the cool thing is, is a couple other people got on. They're like, wow, this is really smooth. I can oh. register, it's just rolling. So this is the deal. I'm going to read this from Facebook because I think some people can get bent out of shape about VIG, like early, you know, the kind of like the elitism around being a VIG badge person and and purchaser and then getting to register for games earlier. Now, it's kind of a thing in the it, Gen Con has it, Gary Con has it, Gamehole has it. I think it's kind of a trend and it offsets the the huge rush. And and frankly, cons can make a couple bucks more for people to pay those premium prices and get into events. But they don't all all the good events don't evaporate just because there's VIG, you know, people buying them. But I saw this on Facebook. So this is really cool about Gamehole. And I want to get Royce on here because Royce is their tech guy. He's in charge of the website. And I know Alex, we've had him on the show twice now. And uh, we've had Josh Hoyt on here. And one thing they take very big pride in is making it an experience that they would want to have as gamers at any con that they go to. And having said that, their website, I mean, I know Alex. I told Alex, I'm like, dude, do not have that thing crash. He's like, oh, no, geez, no. Just no. I'm like, don't, don't have that don't, crash, man. Just, don't pull a Gary Con, man. He's don't like, let no. that fucker die. He's like, nope, I told Royce. And Royce got load balancing and all this crap. He knows when the traffic's going to come. But this was really cool. This is from Facebook. I will not name the names. And I do run into these two at Gary Con and Gamehole Con. I, I've talked to them very, very briefly. I've actually kind of stood in a conversation with them, but uh, I don't know them really well. But this is them saying this, not us. Go because this is—I don't want us. I mean, we're fanboys. That's obvious. But this is coming from somebody else. Absolutely, go for it. Vig event registration went live this Saturday, past Saturday, August first. Awesome. Oh, that's what I'm reading. No, that's me. Awesome. See if we can get Royce. That's me. Sorry. 
their email, their blurb on Facebook starts. Quote, I think a solid golf clap is in order for Alex and friends for running the smoothest and easiest registration process in the history of conventions. We we were both fully registered, got in every game we wanted, including two special events in a total of 55 seconds. No stress, no fuss, just a couple of clicks and boom, done in less than a minute. Wow. I know some people don't like the early registration, but last time I checked, there was less than 10 games sold out and only two of them were special events. That's pretty darn amazing if you ask me. The early reg and the limit on the specials clearly works. There are a ton of absolutely awesome games still available. I wish I could register again. I'm sure it's not always the easy or cheapest way, but you holers always seem to go to the extra mile to make the average schmo gamer like myself feel welcome and feel like they are getting the absolute best con experience that his or her money can buy. Thanks for that. Excellent job to everyone involved. Now what, unquote. Now, the reason I wanted to point this out is, one, it's it's somebody else that probably is a, absolutely a fan of Gamehole, but they have what's called a wish list. So you can go to Gamehole, you create a user login, you buy a badge, you don't have to buy a badge. But what happens once you have your login is you when you log in, you can add events, go through the timetable, and you go add event, add event. And you could do sorts by RPGs, CCGs, miniatures, kind of standard stuff, right? Um and then on the left-hand side is kind of like a mini calendar for that day. So if you're doing Friday, Friday's got a timetable on the left-hand margin. And when you click on event for Friday, it fills it in and blocks off that time on the left. Okay, so you get to see how you can kind of overlap your events and, and make sure you're, you don't double book yourself or what have you. Or you may want to double book just in case you can't get your first event. But not only is it a cool physical physical representation of your schedule and timeline but when you go to register for those events and they're in your wish list you it'll say here's the events in your wish list all you have to do is go purchase wish list boom done wow all done if as long as there's slots right i don't know what happens when there's not slots it may just say like you can't add it because there's not not a slot available but literally i went in there and I had seminars because we're recording them, Brett. I didn't, yep, that's right. I didn't buy them because we're going to record them. But I had them in my schedule so I knew when I was going to be where and when. Well, if they're going to show you a schedule, you know, like a Gantt chart or that's a what project it is. management term there. But basically, you know, hey, it's your uh, Microsoft Outlook work calendar for those of us who live in, in you know, office or calendaring. Corporate at, America. At the day job, corporate America right. day job shit. It's the same thing. You just look and say, fuck, I'm double booked. I'm triple booked. I can't make it. Right. That's awesome. But the thing is, is that when you, so when registration comes around and you have those set, you log in, they're there. And then what happens is you just go purchase events, boom, done. And then it sends you a confirmation. Yep, yep, yep. It'll actually add them to your cart. Then you check out and then it'll confirm and send you an email and say, hey, you have purchased these events and we've confirmed them. But that's it. Like literally when you go to do an event other than putting them into your kind of your roster thing, it's literally like two clicks. I mean, it is smooth as as shit. I have to give them all the credit in the world. And frankly, you know, Gen Con, I don't even think does that. I don't know. I don't think they do. You put them in, you put them in your like schedule and then you just go there and go, yeah, I want to click I'm here. I want to buy all these. Boom. Add them to my cart. Boom. Buy. I mean, you got to put in your credit card info or yep. you want to select PayPal, but it is very smooth. Um, 
If you don't get here to game hole, that's cool. I wish everybody could experience that, even if they're not coming, because it will it's show just them. A good, it's just a good setup. I mean, it's one of those things that the technology's there. It's not. I want to say it's not that hard. I mean, I, I work in tech and do and I do tech projects and that type of thing, so I know it's not that not that difficult per se. Now, the cool part that the game hole guys have done is that they partnered up with the right smart people that are not only gamers but get the tech. And build it and do it and manage it and maintain it and aren't uh, flight risk that they're going to run off on them, you know, in the middle of the middle of the convention. So anyway, good stuff. Yeah, you literally you literally do not have to write down the events you want on like a piece of paper or in some goofy spreadsheet and then go through and then all of a sudden it opens up and you're like, oh, it's shit. Not like registering for classes my first year in college. Yeah, right? exactly. Where you just feel like you're. Oh, shit. I got to get in there. So you're like put in the search, hit enter, hope it comes up. Nobody else is yep. taking it. Then you add it to the cart. Oh, should I buy this one first before going on to the next one or should I all add them to all my cart? All that shit is gone. Nice. Smoothness. Anyways, let's move on. That's uh, all I have to say about that. All right, uh, let's get into Random Encounter, man. Let's do it. Oh, that was really loud. Random Encounter, where we field emails, voicemails, and uh, comments from social media from our listeners and fans. First one is from Michael Althauser, friend of the show, gamer. And and dice bag creator. (laughs) Dice bag creator. I've heard about that guy. Episode. It is good stuff. Episode 44, fudging dice rolls. To clarify my stance on fudging dice, I did say that I tend to fudge di- di- fudge dish. I did say that I tend to fudge occasionally on inconsequential rolls, which for me tends to mean things like does the bar have stew on the menu tonight or what are the chances that there are dancing girls at this festival. In other words, I'll make shit up for every for very minor events and happenings that have little to no effect on the game itself. I also have a tendency to roll dice randomly throughout the session, which always has the players joking, uh-oh, Mike's rolling dice, better watch out, guys. I think that on the topic of fudging dice, speaking from a GM standpoint, that it can be a lot like railroading. If it's a, if it's really well done, then the players presumably wouldn't mind as long as it still makes for an incredible story slash gaming session. As a player, railroad me all you want as long as I don't know and still have a good time. And then Tim Jensen after that was like, well, then why roll dice? Like if they don't I, I get I get it. I think some of it for me was it, for the inconsequential thing. Does a bar have stew? Sometimes as a game master, I've been behind the screen and it's almost a reflex action to roll a die. Where sometimes you pick it up and roll it and you're like, I don't know why I did that. I, I, the answer is yes or no. <laughs> it is, it's very simple. Yeah. So I, I used to do that a lot actually where someone would ask me something and I would like – kind of pretend I'm referencing some stew chart or something crazy. I'm not, Michael, I apologize. I'm not picking on you for it. It is something I've done too. And sometimes it, to me, it's almost like a reflex action. I'm behind the screen. If I'm using the screen, I've got dice in front of me, so I roll it. But I mean, there is no necessarily need for those inconsequential things. Does it have stew? Are there, like you said, are there dancing girls at the festival? Yeah, actually there's a, there's a dancing troupe. There's uh four guys, three girls are doing some acrobatic thing. Oh, wow. Okay. Done. Yeah. Just made it up. Don't even need to roll a die. But I do recall it was it's it's an old school trick from a game master perspective to roll dice every once in a while so people go oh oh Mike's rolling dice better watch out who is that oh so what are you gonna do click okay nothing oh no 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 nothing happened it's, it's good it's good no you're fine you're fine would you roll for it? oh never mind never mind it, it's a trick you know that you can use as a game master to keep players on their toes and sometimes I've done it before when the when the players are getting a little crazy helps kind of bring them back home when they're uh, not paying attention to the game. 
roll something. All right, what's your initiative again? What? 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 We're rolling initiative. Sometimes it's it's fun. Yeah. You want to read Moe's? <sighs> Let's see. Moe, on episode 43, taking it to the table. Here's something I do to improve the games at my place. I recently invested in Philips HUE lights from my game room. Hue lights. These are programmable LED lights that you can set up in any color. With the right app, you can even animate them. I know. That's fucking cool. Yeah, I can cool. now add mood lighting to my games, like storming, flickering lights for lightning. The goblin boss is gathering war every ener- energy to cast a spell. The room slowly turns green. The alarm klaxons going off. The lights will strobe red. I even have an app called God Voice, <laughs> which is awesome, that causes the lights to grow in intensity as my voice gets louder. That's pretty cool. On uh, on the uh, Google Plus page there, go out there, take a look at our community. He's got a quick shot of the game room with the lights set in a red-blue pattern. It's pretty slick. Um, as for a source of inspiration, I have to plug Engine Publishing. Their books are awesome. I think uh, Never Unprepared has been the most influential in my gaming group. And that episode, episode 43, that was just before we interviewed Phil Vecchione around uh, – um, do, 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 do. what's that latest book? He wrote a book or something. I can't remember. Uh, something he did not too long ago, Engine Publishing. Eh, whatever. It must have been fun. Anyway, so <laughs> but before we interviewed Phil, on uh, we talked about different tactics and tricks and getting things to the table. So that's kind of where where he's come, where most coming from there. Good stuff. Did you see the one from Roger Braslett on on the money episode? Oh, yeah. I don't think I did. Re- by all <laughs> means, read that. I've got it. Great. So Shoot. he was out. He's sitting outside. He's got a nice little picture of himself oh, up yeah, there, yeah, yeah, thinking yeah. thoughtfully. He said, the importance of money, this is from episode 46, the one we just did, um, the importance of money def- uh, definitely seems to depend on the game. In D&D 2E, Forgotten Realms, games I play, there's plenty to go around. My character was, until recently, relatively poor, but I always had plenty for the necessities. I could always pay for food and lodging. I already had a weapon. I already had armor. I was all set for many, many adventures. In Warhammer Fantasy Role-Playing 2nd Edition, I always find myself limited by the amount of money I have or don't have. The problem lies in the fact that in order to advance to a new career, this is in Warhammer uh, Fantasy Roleplay 2E, you have to uh, have specific trappings. Excuse me. My protagonist is currently stuck spinning her wheels, so to speak, because I need a rapier, pistol ammunition, and pistol shot to advance to a duelist, but I can't afford it. The game, as written, will not allow me to advance until I buy those things. This is a problem I never encounter in D&D. Uh, there, even if you can't upgrade your gear, you can still advance, still get the level ding. My words there. Um, back to uh, back to Roger. I have enough experience points for my Warhammer Fantasy character to almost reach the career after Duelist, but I'm stuck due to lack of fundage. He prefers Warhammer Fantasy roleplay to other games, but sometimes the uh, po- uh, paucity of the game holds him back. So it's one of those pieces where it's almost feels prime for a house rule, right? Where you're like, look, do, do you need that? Do you not? And without Roger sitting in front of us here to to chat through whether he'd like to is, – is that a rule piece within that Warhammer 2E that he'd like to uh, revise or change? But that is interesting to have it be – I haven't played 2nd Edition. I've only played 1st Edition Warhammer, and I don't recall the um, – whether that was a component of 1st Ed or not. But that's interesting to have that be a piece in game system-wise. Like, look, you don't have the cash to buy the gear. You can't, you can't get that new level. You can't get that new class. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Cool. Thank you, Roger. Good stuff. Thank you, everybody, for writing in and leaving your comments. If you would like to also comment, you can do so on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or Smoke Signals, our blog. Call Brad in the middle of the night. I'm good with that. Yeah. My wife doesn't get too mad. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. 
929 Big Dice. See what happens. Exactly. All right. Let's go into our sponsor. Do it. Michael Aldhauser, a friend of the show and sponsor, is the gamer behind the awesome dice bags available at grayedout.etsy.com. Yeah, grayed out. Yeah, I've got four of these awesome bags. These are stand-up bags, dual drawstring, tough as nails. He can do custom work. He's got a ton of things in his shop, custom colors. You name it, he can pull it off for you. Be sure to mention Gaming NBS for a 10% discount when you place your order. At the website, grayedout, that's G-R-E-Y-E-D-O-U-T dot Etsy dot com. You know, I think our marketing campaign is actually doing pretty well for, uh, for Michael. I mean, I, I looked at the different people that have um, that know the ad really well. Hell, we even got uh, the guys over at Misdirect and Mark heard it, and uh, they're, buying di- they're buying dice bags from wow. Michael. All we right. Pounded hey. it. We, we pounded it through them, man. They're buying dice bags from Michael. That's awesome. You know, they, they told people how incredibly cool it is. I'm just saying, our ad, our ad moxie, savvy, whatever you want to call it, we clearly know how to push product. If I got Vecchione and you and I got Vecchione and Sneezak to buy stuff, we, we got this down I think cold. That's a, I think that's a win. We totally win. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you have purchased a dice bag from Michael, thank you because it supports the show and he continues to pay us. Absolutely. The other, I would like to actually see some dice bags of his in the wild. Yeah. Michael loves that when people show a table game with, you know, boom, his dice bag sitting out there. That'd be really cool. Yeah, and and, and put our promo code to it. I mean, pass it Do along it. to somebody. Michael won't care because then he knows that people are doing it through our our show. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much. Much. I got to get some more dice bags from him, actually, because uh, for Evercon, I've got another uh, batch of eight that I need him to whip up for me. I mean, me, they're so. tough as nails. Two, nails, two, two drawstring. Custom colors, two Co- dual drawstring. What else could you want? Yeah, just contact him. Totally. Yeah. Just ask the misdirected mark guys. They they know they know good quality when they see it. They they must. They absolutely must. They must. They, they do. Uh, and speaking of which, um, of those guys, I want to thank Chris, actually, um, for correcting me on the Dungeon World thing, because I know that my my rules uh, savviness can be not uh, could be lacking, and I know Chris has played met many more sessions of Dungeon World than I have. So if you say if you yell at us uh, like Sean, man, you're screwing up again, dude. You don't know the rules of that game, and you're just spouting off crap. Go over to Misdirected Mark, where Chris will correct me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you'll get you'll get the skinny, and then it'll alleviate your frustration. But I, I, I'm being sincere though, because I you I didn't know the money piece of dungeon world. I know there's slots, and I know there's mm-hmm. moves, and I didn't know like the spend cash move or whatever it was. So I'm, I'm gonna. Actually, I think what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna purposely go out of my way to f up rules, just to see if he catches to you? see if he, to see if Chris catches me. And then says it out on the air and says, look, he should have the segment gaming and BS. And then within that, a subsegment saying, correct Sean, the correction for Sean. Fixing Sean's F ups. Is that like that section in the newspaper where it says our apologies, you know, or editorial? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So thank you. I actually hope at some point if we can, uh, we can arrange it. For next con season, where we get together with those boys, I want to uh, I want to play uh, Dungeon World with those guys. I think that'd be fun. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. Let's get into the topic of discussion. We have like a we have an intro for like everything but the topic. 
Yeah, we should come up with one. Well, if I know about them. Oh, well. Way so out, we start talking about this on Friday. Way out so, in advance. Way out in advance? Well, Ooh. I don't know what way out is. I mean, Brett could, I'm just saying, Brett could come up with an entire month's worth. Like, he could be like, dude, next Thursday, one bam, after that, bam. Th- Yep. The one after that, this one. One after that, so this one. You, is that a challenge? You want me to do that? Well, no, no. I don't want to put you under too much pressure. The only reason I say that is... That, the guy who does the lion's share of the actual work on the show. I don't want to make you work, Brett. <laughs> nice. Brett, I just I do this all for you, man, so you can rake in the fame and glory. That's true. It is It is quite nice. Um, But I, I say that because like we did one for money. We did one... I did one for the spy, the spy. Yep, the spy. I didn't do one for travel. No, no, no. Oh, you're talking about the uh, the intros. Yeah, for topics, a discussion. All right. Well, I'll see if I can. I'll get on the stick there and help you out. Yeah, I I I got a couple in mind. I'm just going to do because I think eventually we'll cover it. Okay. But but anyways, why Brett? Why don't you introduce the listeners and let's get to the topic, shall we? Exactly. All right. right. So I want to talk about ecologies for monsters and races within games. Um, part of this comes because it's because of Gen Con. I was thinking about different con games, small ones I've run or a couple that I have played in. I'm not a huge – when I go to cons, I spend a lot of time meeting people, hanging out in seminars. Um, off, kind of off-the-grid gaming is more entertaining to me sometimes. <clears throat> and when – one of the things that I run into sometimes is where – or hear about this a lot – is where people take a monster and they kind of flip it a little bit. They play against type. And one of the ways to do that is to really understand, or to do it effectively, in my opinion, is to understand the ecology of that creature, how you think it should work or operate, or even if the ecology is, you know, well-known, orcs are tribal, and, you know, kobolds would do this, and just kind of breaking that down into different components. What's, and, wait, wait, what's, what's play what, against, what is play against type? What is that? It's basically taking whatever the uh, the creature normally does by standard uh, description, say in a monster manual for a D&D or a, or a racial characteristic, like you'd say the drow are or the drow females tend to be the ones in charge the or uh, orcs are this way or whatever, and then flipping it a little bit. Um, kind of like the, the classic uh, uh, Drizzt from the uh, – uh, his big his cat from the Forgotten Realms, right? He's that dark elf that's not evil, right? So – very blunt kind of uh, kind of a playing against type, but that's where I'm what I'm thinking about. So, Sean, in your games, do you think about the ecologies of the the critters? And again, this is not just not just fantasy, at least in my opinion. You know, if you're playing a sci-fi game or whatever. When I ran my uh, Murder City game, I pulled the the uh, the PC races from Star Frontiers I had Dralocytes and Vrusks and the Arzarians and so forth. And the guys picked and chose some of the different components of it. Some of them played up certain racial stereotypes or two type, and uh, other places they decided that they were going to play against it a little bit and have a slightly different uh, approach on their character. Does that play in to you at all, or do you not even think about that? I don't really. I don't think too much about the ecology. Um, I well, no, no, I don't necessarily. But I, th- I know that there was, uh, you know, D. Dragon, Dragon had the ecology articles that people gobbled up. Yep, Ed Greenwood used to write a bunch of them, and a number of other guys. Ecology of the Beholder, Ecology of the Gas Spore, of all crazy things. I think some of those would be really. I think some of them are really cool, just to kind of know personally, like the the ecology of the uh, Beholder or the Mind Flayer, because it's like where, how are these things even 
what do they, excuse me, how do they exist? What is their environment like? But I don't, I think there was a gap in time where I just didn't really care. Like you, you'd be in a dungeon and you, well, you come across a beholder. But I, I think taking in the, now I think with the monster manual, the 5e monster manual, they, uh, they, they build the ecology piece into the monster's powers. Yes, there's more ecology into it. I think even 3.0 and 3.5 and Pathfinder did a fair amount of that where they would have this creature has, you know, a toughness or it has a grappling ability or it has something because of the environment it lives in and therefore it could do this thing. Where I started to get, I loved reading the Dragon Magazine ecologies back in high school and in college and stuff. I, I loved reading them and, and thinking about how to make my dragons more more interesting or how to make this um, – goblins or beholders, something just to understand how they, excuse me, even something as simple as, you know, uh, beholder reproduction insofar as if the characters are going through a dungeon and they go down and they find this sign or this stuff or, or something along those lines, it's kind of that part of it's the, uh, my, my love of being, uh, the ranger character class and just tracking and trying to pick up signs and anything that would point towards what's in front of me or what, what could be around the next corner. And when you find when you find certain things and you're like, oh, what's that? I don't understand. It adds to the mystery of the event. So when, for example, a while back I was running my buddy Lenny and Beta through an adventure and um, <clears throat> they were to go figure out what was up in this hillside that was causing some havoc around this one uh, dwarf's farm. So they go milling around and they find where some trees have been snapped off. Big branches. It looked like someone kind of dove down from on high. They're like, okay, what's this? I don't get it. There's this weird, viscous, oily stuff on the ground. It stinks. They can't quite figure that out. There's more uh, skeletons. There's stuff, dead animals. And then they find this big um, uh, excuse me, a wild boar. And the wild boar had these massive puncture wounds. had big, big claws, obviously. And it looked like somebody just stabbed this thing repeatedly. And there's this nasty, rank odor. And it's covered in this kind of... Uh, um, greenish ichor, right? It just It's nasty, and they're trying to sort this out. Well, it's a freaking wavering is what it is. It's got a poison stinger. It stabbed this boar a bunch of times, and there's poison around it. And then what the wavering would do is I decided that the waverings in my Avalon world behave similar to um, wolverines and some other animals where they'll spray, um, prey that they don't eat, whatever it is, to discourage other predators from scavenging on their stuff. So they would just kind of spray it with poison because their own poison doesn't bother them and other creatures won't come after it. <clears throat> so that became a twist that made, oh, it's a wavering up in a freaking hill. i got to climb the hill, watch out for the poison, do this thing. But having that ecological perspective or the ecology piece of it, everyone went, oh, what is this? I don't understand it. And they learned bits and pieces of information around the creature. So that way, when I later on, when they were fighting the wavering, and then they find out there's, oh, shit, there's two of them. There's a male and a female. There's an egg. One of the wavering does a flyby and sprays the poison on them um, in a similar vein that it did to uh, cover the, the dead boar. That was something that was kind of, oh, wow, they can do this. Thing. Wow, it made the wavering a new monster again as opposed to being, oh, it has approximately this many hit points. It's this type of saving throw, blah, blah, blah. It became something that was uh, more realistic to them. Yeah, I was looking. I'm looking up in the Monster Manual of Five E now, and it's um, the. It's funny because the Beholder has a regional. Oh shoot! I just turned a damn page. It has a like a regional. Man, what is the damn name of it? Hold on a second. 
Sounds of Sean rapidly flipping pages. I know, right? <laughs> it's um, so they don't have them for all the all the creatures, like re- all regional them. effects, is what yes. it is. Okay, and then but they they do go into the like the descriptions of where they come from and what they are about, and I never really, I, I don't know. I think a smart GM takes because <laughs> that's not me takes into <laughs> effect some of that stuff. Well, if it makes you feel any better, both of my sons, my 16-year-old and my 9-year-old, are taking it into account. <laughs> oh, there you go. No, it's actually it's, it's interesting that that information is there. If you pick up a, a first edition anything from back in the 80s, 70s, and even early 90s, some of it was just block of stats and a brief bit of, you know, <clears throat> hobgoblins are a warlike race. Okay. Bugbears are mean, and they sometimes bully lesser goblinoids. Okay. Well, they used to have, like, chance of, <clears throat> percent chance of encountering. Yes. And then the number. The yeah. Nu- the number of them. But then just like I said, so when – how do I do this? So when Connor goes through and he's reading the new monster manuals or he's looking up stuff and when AJ picked out one of my first edition books and was flipping through some monsters, I think he was actually looking through um, – got a, a Middle-earth role-playing one because he just want to look at different monsters and ideas for the little game he was going to run. He's like, well, how does this one behave if I'm in a forest? I mean, he's asking me this because he wants to know, so that way he can try to uh, trick me or do something different or make it a little more realistic. So I just, it's, I don't think it takes a lot of work. And it basically, if you apply that ecological, the the ecological, excuse me, the ecology data or how they behave, just taking different behavior pieces, you don't have to get into how long does it take for two beholders to, you know, pass spores together and lay an egg and do this thing or how what's the gestation period of dragons just understanding that you know it's a rare event you've encountered this this beast in the in the mountains and it's you know it's acting a certain way it's behaving oddly it's nothing like like you're used to seeing well guess what it's a female as a clutch of eggs and therefore it's just laid them it's lethargic because of the physical effort it took to lay the eggs blah 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 it helps for me as a game master to make certain encounters more interesting. When I had my guys encounter, <coughs> excuse me again, encounter cloakers, um, these nasty little things that came from a Fritz Library story uh, in D and D, the guys went through and they they find these weird um, piles of rocks on the ground in this one room. They're, they're kind of all set up in this weird nesting formation. There's different types of them. Some of them have different gems, jewels, or candles, and just weird things collected. Well, I had decided that the way the cloakers operated, there were different types of nests for each cloaker, depending on where it stood in the cloaker hierarchy or society. Some of them I uh, deemed were overly were a little more intelligent. They had clerical power. Some were more like sorcerers because they just wanted to twist it up a little bit. And by doing that, then I tried to figure out how that would fit into the rest of the cloaker um, the cloaker ecology, how, how would they operate together? Well, this group of them would nest off in this area. This other group like this. So pretty soon the players start to put one and one together and say, okay, the next room they come into, they see these cloakers. <coughs> these have spots. Okay, those are the fighters. They see this other group of cloakers together. They're a little bit smaller in a darker blue color. Like, shit, those are the sorcerers fucking duck because they got lightning bolts like crazy. So it just, it became something that instead of just memorizing stats of the monster manual, they forgot all that stuff and started asking questions about what the creatures did and how they worked and what they uh, what they look like. Does that make sense to you? 
Yeah, it does. I had a, a DM once that wanted to do like synergis, synergistic. Is that even a word? It is now. Yeah. Hey, misdirected Mark, correct me if I'm wrong on synergistic. What kind of trademark it anyway? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what is what is it when you do research or uh, when you're on a show, you have people outsource to do that? Oh, yeah. Research, uh, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yo, research. Um, Yo, research. Hey, get on that. Chop, chop. They, so, um, they, but the synergies would be like a, 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 a creature that would get off, give off, get off, give off electricity, then another creature that would heal from electricity, right? So you'd have like a weird, if you played by CRs, the CR probably wouldn't be that big a deal until you start making those combinations and then it can get really wacky out of hand. Okay, so if you have, in a sci-fi game, you've got this creature that lives in a certain area and it has a parasite or something and all that stuff together. Yeah, I mean, I just, this just hit me in the Iron Kingdoms in their 3.0 system, which is, I have the books on that, in the Monstronomicon, there was a, there are these barnacles, these nasty little barnacle things that would actually, they kind of hook onto you and they drain blood and whatever and they're really nasty. But they give stats for these things would basically latch on to these huge creatures and form this kind of armor, this chitinous armor that would be all over this this creature would make it angry and just very volatile. It would be maddening having all this pain constantly involved. You know, but it can't – it's so hard to kill it now because it has all this barnacle armor all over it and it becomes more toxic. And I can't recall all the different components of it. But again, kind of that uh, symbiotic relationship where one – I think that's where you're going, symbiotic, where one does something – and uh, one's almost like a, a – it's a symbiotic parasite where it's connected to it and therefore it gives it a bonus on its armor class and its rage and stronger and all that good stuff. Well, yeah, uh, symbiotic is one word, but I'm really – I'm sincerely talking about synergies where you're – one is one is gaining more advantage from the source of another. It's kind of like um, – you know, it'd be it'd be similar to like uh, an electric. Mm, what's produce electricity? Electric eel. Yeah, maybe an electric eel, but then maybe having a water elemental. That's a bad example. Almost like an iron golem and then a rust monster, but that doesn't make sense because it's the opposite. You know, I'm trying to get something that because uh, I can't remember any of the encounters he actually wanted to throw at us that would incorporate that, but it's. Um. Yeah, it, I don't know. It's it would be like a gasoline elemental and a fire elemental get together. Okay. Right. So not yeah. symbiotic. More sounds like it's part of one or the other. Right. One is like has to kind of the the survival of one counts on the other. Where I'm talking more or less. You know, oh, a fire elemental would do 1d8 points of damage or 1d6 points of damage. Oh, but now there's this oil elemental that's there and, you know, it increases it exponentially. So if you take, if you look at it now, I'm just thinking where I live, I live out, out west of Madison. There's a number of farms in this small community where I'm at. And if you, so if you think about that from a medieval perspective, why do you live near the town? Well, there's water here. So everybody lives near the water. They live near where the farms are. It's easier to get food. The uh, woodcutters live near the freaking woods. They don't live up in the mountains. And uh, people in mining co- mining colonies and stuff, those mining towns grow up near the mine because it's <clears throat> it's the place to go. If you translate that over to your creatures, 
Uh, again, we, we tend to, Sean and I tend to go fantasy because we, we play a lot of that recently. But if you're, regardless of what the, the setting is, if your creatures have a tendency to the, I wrote an adventure a while back <coughs> where these trolls are these big, slow, obnoxious things and they're incredibly messy. So nearby, there was this little, there's this pack of kobolds that lived in the swamp. And uh, what they would do is they would scavenge often from the trolls' lair, right? They live far enough away. They're really quiet and super sneaky. And what they would do is they would follow the trolls as they went from place to place to place because the trolls would kill a bunch of stuff, glut themselves, but they always left debris and half-eaten stuff. So they were always following around, scavenging behind. So I think where we're, I think where Sean and I are getting, at least where I'm trying to go with it, is that not only just depth to the encounters, but it gives a reason why these critters and these races are doing certain things. You know, if the Drugar, your dark dwarves and dark elves, if they are um, <clears throat> they're living, what you know, in certain areas, whatever it is, it's because they're there so they can get to this mine. They're there because that's a center of a trade in the Underdark. Or the elves live in the forest because it provides protection. Or they're living uh, here because there's a holy relic in the center of the forest or, or something along those lines. Drawing those connections makes the entire event or the entire encounter, adventure, whatever it is, a lot more realistic. And it doesn't have to be like the core piece of the adventure, right? It doesn't have to be like, oh, we have to come to the elven village or the whatever on this planet because these people all worship this rock and the rock has this magical thing that provides the atmosphere for the planet and if we don't save them, they'll die. <clears throat> it doesn't always have to be that grandiose, but you can do something where, look, the reason the bullet, this nasty land shark thing in AD&D, the reason it's not attacking us and acting kind of wonky is, guess what? This thing has developed a taste for uh, beer because there's a brewery not that far away and it's crashed into that, and it's now tracking down dwar- dwarven dwarven breweries underground or something. You can add kind of a weird twist onto the creature and say, well, God, it's behaving, again, against type. It's doing something totally weird. I've not seen anything like that. It's not in the, it's not in the Monster Manual. I've never fought anything like the, a bullet like this doing this thing. So, therefore, it must be, you know, it has to have some e- ecology reason for it. It's behaving differently because it's developed a taste for something different. See what, see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And I think it, if a lot of things will, people want to make sense out of things, even if you're playing in a fantasy role-playing game and magic is kind of magic. People want to kind of have some type of logic behind certain things. So I think it comes into play with, with creatures at times. Even though I, think, I, I haven't put a lot of thought into it, I think a lot of creatures aren't ecology specific some are more than others yes i think a cool part though is that when you are running a game if you do we were playing lost minds of fendelver before we shit can that campaign started over i remember we're going through the one thing in the forest and there's one sturge this freaking blood-sucking mosquito monster thing right immediately the group we start talking to each other kind of metagaming a little bit we're like okay there's one of them what if there's more i don't know we're all worried we're concerned about it at that point, it gives you as the game master an opportunity to take the player input and add note to the ecology of the creature. If we throw out something that's, you know, if we're spitting diamonds over here, as I want to say, um, that, hey, Sturges, I think they behave like this, says Kev Thulu's character. And then Jim says, no, I think they act like this. You can write those down. You can take note of those things. And later on, if we encounter more Sturges, we're like, holy shit, Jim was right. This is how they behave. 
And, well, too bad for Phil's character because Phil didn't pay any attention to what Jim had warned us about and the damn things jumped him in the middle of the night because he didn't coat himself with garlic juice and they hate garlic juice or or whatever. I mean, you, you can take those things that the players do if you encourage them to, um, what do you think you've heard about this Sturge? What do you think you've heard about these creatures from Alpha Centauri? What, what might you have heard here or there? Either skill rolls or sometimes players will just rattle shit off. Stuff that they may, even if it's metagaming stuff, you can take you know, bad metagaming where they misremembering. You can take it and you can play on it. I think it's if you're on your, if you can play off the cuff and uh, on your feet as a game master, you can use a lot of that player feedback to help tweak the ecology of the creature and just mess around with it a little bit. Yeah, I'm going to do that with somebody where everything they come up with is wrong. Like I'll say, hey, you've heard this once before that if you sprinkle honey on your neck, it keeps these creatures away. But it only attracts them. That would be funny as Where hell. Where people are like, oh, that's a good idea. Okay. All right, everybody gather around. We got some honey? Yeah, okay. I slap some on my neck. Okay, cool, sweet. And dab a little behind each ear. That'll save you. <laughs> Keep going. Oh, vampires! Oh, Jesus! <laughs> they always, what the hell, man? I thought you said these, you know. I thought I, I thought I read it somewhere. Oh, wait, no, it's werewolves, oh, yeah. not vampires. Son of, sorry, sorry. Damn. Sorry about that, guys. Wrong creature. <clears throat> when I ran a... um. I ran a, a con game at Evercon. It's a teeny little convention I've talked about before on the show. One of the things I did with a um, with a Pathfinder game I ran there was I set up uh, kind of a little goblin encounter. But, excuse me, it wasn't goblins, it was orcs. Move big difference. But what had happened was is this priest of Odin had converted this tribe, and they were lawful good orcs. He completely converted them, and the orcs were – they showed up in full war gear – they had symbols of Odin. They had a big eye on their chest because Odin is a one-eyed god. So they, they took the Grumsh thing and they just kind of converted it. Instead of a red eye, it was a white eye and, and all this stuff. And the, player, the players, of course, saw, oh, my God, orcs. And they fucking slaughtered them all without realizing that, oh, these orcs were here to help you fight the frost giants. Yeah, they actually was a small army, if you will, or a small battalion of these uh, lawful good orcs because they had been converted so what happens is they show up, the orcs show up to like talk to the players like, hey, we're here to help you because we believe in Odin. We're with you. We're going to fight these frost giants. The players start laying waste to them. So the high priest of Odin shows up and goes, oh, my God, no. He starts slot- swatting some characters trying to get them off his orc followers. And then they kill the freaking priest, of course, because like, oh, my God, he's, he's fighting us too. He must be evil. And then they're rifling through belongings like any good bunch of murder hobos would do. And like, oh, wow, we – uh. We killed this priest of Odin. Oh, and these orcs seem to, wow, they're all on his side. Oh, lovely. <laughs> so, again, it was that opportunity where orcs behave in a certain way. They're tribal. And I, where I'm going is that for one-shot games or convention games, I think it's fun, or has been for me in, anyway, to take those some of those very standard races and tweak them, turn them on their head a little bit. And that's one of the reasons I, I, I wanted to talk about playing against type. I think it's a fun time to do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. I think DCC does some of that too, but they even go bonkers. Like, and I say bonkers as in they don't take something that's kind of your usual. They just make it just something unusual. Yeah, they'll do the whole everything is mutated or whatever. Right. right. It might be mutated or, yeah, a bunch of creatures with different heads. Well, actually, a bunch of humanoids with different heads. Yes. <laughs> I remember reading through that. Yeah, that gets a little crazy. So now the one place that I think, hmm, hmm, I think you can do this. 
at least I, I've done it as well in kind of a modern in a modern setting. I think you can do it with like your your spies, your investigations, and stuff, even with horror. And uh, Call of Cthulhu does this a lot. And I've listened to Ken and Robin a bunch, and and Ken will talk about this where you take um, a creature from the Cthulhu mythos, like ghouls, their version of ghouls, or deep ones or whatever it is, and you tweak it a little bit, and that takes I. <clears throat> Basically, I think not talking about this more with you, I think working out a tweak to the ecology for the creature or the race or the mythology behind a thing take, is one way to get some of that magic back that you've talked about, Sean. You know, where everybody knows all the monsters, like, oh, it's a fucking twig blight. Oh, twig blights. It's this much damage and this much resistance and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But if you take some time, either prepare ahead of time or have a list of possible options, something next to you that you can, you can kind of flip to. You can twist it and then take that old thing and make it new again just by changing how it interacts and giving it some better depth. Agreed. I agree. Good. I'm trying to find something you don't like about this. See, I if, agree. You can argue, see if you can argue with Going me. Going forward, I agree with everything you say, Brett. <laughs> nice. Thanks. Going forward for the next two seconds. Next two seconds? Oh, excellent. All right. That's over. Thank God. <laughs> that hurt for a little bit, didn't it? So when you play in, if you play in a game and, so let me think about how I'm going to say this. If you're playing in my game and how much depth and craziness do you want for all these? Do you expect every encounter to have to have this deep ecology meaning behind creatures or races and so on does that is that something that you look for as a as a player so that encounters have all this kind of this um connectivity you know so that even with like say a random encounter i roll on a table and i decide it sturges attack us on the way from here to there do you think i need to have those sturges be part of the story do you think you need to take the ecology of a creature and morph it somehow into the storyline for your railroaded adventure that you're going to run Nah. No? Nah. Unless it's part of the if unless it's genuinely a part of the storyline or enriches the storyline, if it's just a if it's just an encounter, I don't think it needs to I don't think you have to force it. There's plenty of encounters that people like the Sturgies you brought up. Yeah, you know, there were 3 of them and what it was was at night and I didn't want just to say, "Oh, it's Sturgies." You know, it's kind of like something's flying around and you don't see it or it's hard to see because of the light. It looks like it flies around and then, oh, it hits you with this big, like, mosquito-like thing that's going to drain your blood. Hypodermic yeah. needle stabs you in the yeah. head. Okay. So I, I think it, it can add. So if you're going through, geez, I mean, if you're going to do horror or you're going to do gothic and you're going to go to fight the vampire, you're going to come across zombies or you're going to come across some type of undead through the graveyard or whatever. That makes sense. Um, if you're going to go into a lair that would incorporate something like a beholder, then, or even Lich, like I looked up in the monster manual, Lich has a, uh, environment piece to it. So like whenever you enter its domain, it has certain powers. So it makes sense that if you're going to go through that, that would add to the story kind of the effect. But I don't think that if you're walking through the woods and you come through a particular creature, that it has to be so well entwined in the encounter that people would say, oh, that makes sense. Or 
oh, that doesn't really make sense. Why are they here? They, you know, why is a polar bear in the middle of a tropical island? A la lost. Okay. Yeah. Well, that could be, that could just be weird, right? You're like 21st century, you're on a tropical island and there's a polar bear. So that could be part of the quirkiness of your game and your campaign. But in D&D, so to speak, and rightfully so, you're not going to have that type of thing unless you are in like a snow environment, I guess. I get so consistency is fine, but I don't think you have to. But sometimes taking two eco- you know, crashing an ecology into something adds to a level of weirdness if you want to go the weirdness route, right? I do, right, yes. That if that's your kind of angle that you're going for, absolutely. Now, there's some games I'm thinking about Knights Black Agents because I'm researching um, that because I may end up having to run an off the grid uh, Knights Black Agents game at GameholeCon. May end up. <laughs> I may end up. You said you were. I don't remember doing that. Um, I've got, hey, listeners, write in and let me know if I'm delusional. I'm pretty sure Brad said he was. Let me know. Just let me know. Correct me if I'm wrong. Hey, misdirected Mark. Correct me if I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. (laughs) On the, uh, but in Night's Black Agents, one of the things you do is you determine the type of vampire that you're going to be fighting. And so it's kind of an ecology perspective of the monster that you're going to go after. Is this monster, is it an occult version? Is it a, um, an alien? Right. Is it a virus? And so on. So that piece of it, now granted, that's basically one monster and its servants is what you're going after. So coming up with an ecology just for that specific thing can be a little, it's not necessarily easier, but it's, it's core to that game that you have to come up with how that's going to function. Okay. And I think if you take that approach... And this is something that I really like about Dungeon Crow Classics is one of the, one of the pieces in that book that I've read a couple of times that always sticks with me is basically start small, right. right? This concept of you're in this town and this is what it is. So if you were to d- say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something kind of quirky. I'm going to rebuild some orcs. I want to have an orc adventure where the guys are going to fight this mob of orcs that's invading this town or doing something. And I have an idea for it to be a little bit different. Like they're all – there's a subgroup of them that worship Odin, like I had, and another group of them that are against that worship Grumsh, and there's going to be this kind of <clears throat> good orcs versus bad orcs war. But the humans and dwarves and halflings and gnomes, everybody who lives in this village, have no clue that these orcs, that there's good orcs and bad orcs, if you will. And I think if you keep it small like that, it's, it's one, it's a shorter story, and it's about this thing with these monsters, and you twist the ecology a little bit. And you work the mon- and you work the monster saying, you know what? Well, they worship Odin and they're good. Well, what does that do to the way that they live? Well, orcs usually live in um, this type of environment. They live in these type of hovels or dirt or filth or whatever you decide that you have them living in, or tribal society. And then you decide that the good orcs, if you will, the Odinite orcs, are <clears throat> they're living in a more Viking longhouse style. Society, they've built different homes, they approach things differently, they, they speak in a different cadence, they have a different honor system, whatever. And you, you take that. Um, so anyway, where I'm going is it, it, it can be big as far as scope, like, hey, it's good orcs versus bad orcs, and these poor couple villages or towns are caught in, in between, and they have to figure out how, if, are they going to side <clears> – <throat> Excuse me, with the good orcs, you know, or are all orcs bad orcs and have that discussion. But I think if you stay small – it's easier to work with some of the ecologies of the big encounter, much like in uh, Knights Black Agents. It's essentially small. It could be globe trotting as far as fighting the vampire, but it's just vampires. It's not vampires plus werewolves plus fungi from Yoggoth 
plus orcs plus 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 it's vampires and their immediate servant group and by doing that and if we take that piece and translate it over to other games um be it sci-fi or whatever the main thrust of what your storyline is about it's easier in my opinion to mess with the ecologies and put some game master thought into it if you keep your scope small that's where i'm going that's fair that's fair that's fair that's good hey how are uh how how do you handle monsters and ecologies? Do you consider them or don't you? And how what kind of uniqueness or unique scenarios have you come up with your monsters or NP, even NPCs um, in what we're talking about? Yeah, I mean it, it's it sounds really simple, and I know that I've done it. Sean's done it. Other game masters have done it. And I'm I'm kind of curious. And with the con with Gen Con coming just ending. I feel like a lot of the con stories I hear from people are, oh, there was this game about this, you know, group of good orcs versus bad orcs. It was really fun. Or it was this game about this group of people that were turned into zombies, but they weren't bad brain-eating zombies. They were cognizant zombies or trying to find a cure for themselves. Like, wow, that made a really good con game. And I think some of that stuff doesn't just have to live at the con game table. I think you can expand it a bit and take it to your regular gaming group table. I'm kind of curious what people have uh, heard, encountered, and seen that they thought was really cool and would like to experience again. Yeah, right in. Good stuff, absolutely. Comment on one of our, our plethora of communication platforms. Let's get into die roll. Let's do the die roll, man. Die roll, two to four miscellaneous points of geekery that uh, or gaming role-playing stuff that we want to bring to your attention the listener let's get into it yes uh flash gordon is coming soon from pinnacle entertainment the old savage worlds crew is back they've got oh and i shouldn't say back they're still at it and they're bringing flash gordon in i heard this from the uh geekosphere round it was announced at gen con so pretty cool i'm kind of a flash gordon fan especially if you think from the uh, uh, that 80s, <laughs> that wonderful 80s movie with the Queen soundtrack, which is freaking awesome. So kind of, I'm interested to, interested to see what they do with it. Flash. Ah. Uh, see, uh, I even got Brett to sing. I know. Savior of the universe. Exactly. Uh, number two I have is Pelgrane Press. Um, speaking about Knights Black Agents, they've got Ken Height to work on a Pelgrane plus Delta Green book. It's about Vietnam, the fall of Delta Green. Uh, per Ken Height's post, he said it's, quote, a standalone adop- adaptation of the new Delta Green RPG to Gumshoe, set in the last era that Delta Green was an authorized anti-mythos agency of the U.S. government in the 1960s. Organizations, bonds, everything you're going to love about the new uh, Delta Green RPG coming soon for Gumshoe and Trailer Cthulhu compatible. That's pretty freaking cool. I cannot wait to see that. That'll be fun. The last one I have, it's a link. There's a lot of award winners for the Ennies. Uh, we've got a link out there if you haven't already heard or seen who won what and so forth. Um, congratulations to everybody who won. It's pretty cool. I think Ken and Robin won some stuff for their podcast. I think Dungeons & Dragons 5e had a big showing. I believe um, Zach Smith for Red and Pleasant Land won. Um, there's some cool stuff out there. So even if you don't necessarily um, like, oh, I don't care for who won or whatever. Just it's, it's cool to see the fans coming in, voting for stuff. Yeah, the Ennies, the voting process may be flawed or whatever. But you know what? It's, it's what we've got right now. And if nothing else, it's nice to see kind of what's hot. Even if you don't look at just the winners, look at who was uh, up for it. Look who was in the, uh, in the running, if you will. It could be a good sign of some uh, kick-ass gaming out there. Your turn, Sean. 
Number one, Deanna. See, somebody says Diana, but I say Deanna Jones Award. I would say Diana. Why Diana, though? I have no idea why. Do you know what the origin of the Deanna Jones Award is? I do not. You don't? No, I don't. It's from the Indiana Jones game. Oh, then in that case, it's Deanna. There right. we go. Yeah. People don't know this. It's an interesting story because the Indiana, Indiana Jones TSR role-playing game, but it was- That's where they tried to trademark Nazi. <laughs> did they really? A buddy of mine had that game. I remember reading it and seeing Nazi TM. I'm like, you can do that? <laughs> anyway, keep going. But anyways, it's it's- there's a little bit of a story behind the Deanna Jones Award. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I thought part of the box, because what happened was, the how it got its name is that there was like a rip in the up from the title of the box or the manual, I don't know. And so that was the Deanna Jones, right? Instead of Indiana Jones, it was... Nice. It Deanna. got cut off, yeah. Anyways, they give it out at, the, um, at Gen Con every year. And this year, the award went to um, the a Guide to Glorantha, which is a role-playing source book by Greg Stafford, Jeff Richard, Sandy Peterson that's been published by Moon, Di- Moon Design Publications. That's uh, Greg Stafford's uh, baby, Glorantha. Yep. That's the world. So they typically, there's nominees um, that were like College of Wizardry, Designer and Dragons, Second Edition, uh, Guide to Glorantha, Mysterium, Torchbearer, so all very good company. And then I believe it is a very closed group. And I think it's the only, I think it's only the industry that kind of nominates and votes on them. I don't know. There's a link in the show notes. You can actually check out. There's an award committee and nominations and deadlines and about the Deanna Jones Award. And I think it even, yeah, what is Deanna Jones Award? And why is it, a, why is this award different? And it goes into those, but check it out. Neat. It's an excellence in gaming award. Number two, Z-Man Games, parent company F2Z Entertainment, has acquired Plaid Hat Games. The company's announced last Wednesday, Plaid Hat, because I'm like, who the hell's Plaid Hat? Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Plaid Hat is the publisher of hit game Dead of Winter. See, top 10 board games spring of 2015. Also, Mice and Mystics. Oh, okay. Dude, I, have, I, I have Mice and Mystics I on know. my shelf. Holy shit. The new, <laughs> the, new, okay. the new entity will operate out of Dallas, Texas, under the name F2Z USA Corp. Well, there we go. Neat. Anyways, yeah. Uh, Force and Destiny launched. I, I'm a big – I'm a fan of the game. I'm a fan of Fantasy Flight. Um, now, Force and Destiny, people are like, so what I'm getting is – is it a standalone game? Because they have, for those of you not in the know, there it's from Fantasy Flight Games. They have Edge of the Empire, and they have Rebel. What the hell is the Rebel one? Rebel Alliance fighting? No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, dude. It's um. Oh my god! It's the one I don't have. Um, Wayne Home Fleet will fix it. Wayne Home Fleet yeah, will correct us pe- Right now, people are crawling out of their skin. Like, oh, dude, it's this, you idiot. Um, but it's more set, um, yeah, Star Wars goodness, basically. Yeah. So Edge of the Empire, Age of Rebellion. Age of Rebellion. And then Force and Destiny. So when you look at these things, they're $60 books. They're huge. They're 300 plus pages, very thick, very well laid out, high pr- production value. Um, great art. 
So each one is its own game. But they do can build off of each other. So there are, you know, you can start out in Edge of the Empire as a fringe scoundrel type of game. And maybe you find yourself in the Rebellion after that, right? Interesting. Like Han Solo. And then you end up as maybe a Force-sensitive individual. Or there's another person in the campaign that is Force-sensitive and they get into Force and Destiny. So there is a lot of overlap with the games. So in other words, how to interpret the dice, how to GM, what is a role-playing game, um, some of the skills, things like that, you'll find in almost every book. The classes may change. Some of the races may be addition. So if you have one over the other, it complements each other. But it, if you are not wanting to spend a lot of money, that's not the game for you. Uh, I only I have Edge of the Empire and a lot of their source books and adventures, and then I have Force and Destiny. The Rebellionary does not really appeal to me. But anyways, I was to, I was stoked because they didn't really make an announcement. I it was I I went to the game store. They didn't know it was going to be launched, and they called me like, "Hey, it's here." I'm like, "Holy shit!" Okay. Just like finding out you're force sensitive. Holy shit! Fucking midichlorians, goddamn. And they even touch on that a little bit. And do they erase it, please? They bring it up as more of a pseudoscience. Hey, excellent. A trite way to explain something that should be way fucking cooler. Yeah. Well, they, they kind of kind of brush it off just a bit where it's kind of like some people think that it's, you know, these microorganisms. But then there's also people that poo-poo that type of measurement. Some people wreck. Brett's childhood. Other people made it good again. <laughs> but it's, not, that it's a, not that I'm bitter. It's a cool book. I got it. I'm I cool. wanna eventually run a Jedi Civil War game Ooh, campaign. That could be fun. Yeah. Uh and then number four, Savage Worlds Riffs. That's right. Sean Patrick Fannin is doing some funness there. Sweet. Yeah, so Pinnacle's doing it. Um Sean was kind of one of the guys that knows um the gentleman that, that heads up Riffs. So if you like Riffs World you know, a lot of setting, as a matter of fact, a, a lot of the people that I know riffs love the setting books and maybe not much of the rules. Um, Savage Worlds is going to get that as a IP to um, further Savage Savage, yeah. yeah. Savage-eyes it. Nice. Savage-eyes it. I do like the riffs world and stuff. I'm not a big Palladium system fan, The but I'd like to say, I'm not a huge Savage Worlds fan either, but it uh, might be interesting to see what they, how they pull that off. Cool. Neat. It is neat and cool. Very, very neat. Yeah, so that's all I have for this week. Brett, you got anything else? No, I think I'm good. All right. As well, good as I can be. And when you listen to this, Gen Con will be over uh, and people will be coming down. So let's be ca- conscious of that. Withdraw symptoms from the big one. Exactly. But hopefully, maybe we'll get there next year. Who knows? Hey, next year, maybe? Nominate us for an any, and we'll be there. Oh, fuck yeah. All right, so this is Gaming and BS. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett. Good night, good gaming all.